Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. And to all of the folks watching us online, my greetings to you as well. May the Lord richly bless you. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this wonderful time that we get to be in your presence. May the preaching and the hearing of the word open our eyes and our hearts to see you as you are and to live in that light and to be nourished by that spiritual food. We ask of you, let this be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe you all have your Bibles with you. We will have very few slides today, just some maps. So please bear with me. Uh, Let us go to the text. The text for today's meditation is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 to 45. A uh, few, few words before, uh, before we start. Uh, this book, the fourth gospel, or gospel according to John, there is a wonderful uh, evidence, um, rich historical and early church history, that this book was written by the Apostle John uh, around AD 90 in the city of Ephesus. So at least that grounds us who wrote it and when. And uh, if we we were to ask John, why did he write this gospel? Um, Well, before that, how many gospels do we have? Show of hands? Well, wrong answer. We have one gospel. (laughs) There is not four gospels. We have one gospel written by four different authors in four different contexts for four different audiences but it is one comprehensive, beautiful gospel. So if you were to ask John, uh, why did he write the gospel, we can, he clears it, he states it right up front. In John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, you can note it down, don't have to run with the text. Um, here he says, These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. If there is one singular and express purpose for why John wrote this gospel, he's not interested in history or biography or even chronology. Well, as good as that may be, and other gospels have taken care of those aspects, here the gospel of John is strictly, John's effort is to reveal who Jesus is to the person reading this text. And if you, and if you look at this book, uh, the gospel, it has 21 chapters, the first 12 chapters, um, John kind of picks seven signs and miracles and reveals who Jesus is. It does not have all the nativity stories or the parables and all the miracles that Matthew and Luke gives us, but he selects seven specific signs to reveal who Jesus is. And then after chapter 12 to the end, it's just an extended passion narrative. That is about his last week here on earth. So... At least we know where the text is going, right? So uh, let me just quickly cruise through the text at record speed. Please follow me. In chapter 3, we see Jesus having this back and forth with Nicodemus, an intellectual, a religious leader who knows his text well. And Jesus tells him, well, all that knowledge is good, but unless you're born again, unless you believe in the Son of God, you shall not have eternal life. All your knowledge, all the philosophy is pointless, it's moot. In chapter 4, he speaks to the Samaritan woman by the well and tells him that if you don't, I, <clears throat> I am the living water. 
And if you feed of me, you shall have life. You shall drink of me. And in chapter 6, um, he, he comes to his disciples and there's already a big ruckus and he says to them, unless you are so inter- unless you abide in me and I in you, to the point he makes a metaphorical uh, explanation that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. You won't have eternal life. A bulk of the disciples leave him right there. And Jesus asks his disciples, do you want to go too? And, and Peter says, no. In you we have in you is the words of eternal life. In chapter 9, we see the blind man. The man was born blind. And here we see at the end of the story, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and out of nothing, out of the void in his sockets, he brings light to his life. And then finally, in chapter 11, which is our text today, um, he reveals to Martha the most profound and the liberating truth in the annals of history, I am the resurrection and the life. John very carefully selected the seven incidents to show who Jesus was, namely the light of the world, the living water, the bread of life, and finally, the climax of all his um, description or identities, he mentions that I am the resurrection and the life to Martha. Um, with that, let me give a little bit of uh, the topographical context. Can I have the map, please? Slide one. Jesus ministered a good, major- we know he ministered for three and a half years. A year and a half after a brief stint near Perea, where J- J- he was baptized by John, he spends a good lot of his time ministering in Galilee, almost a year and a half. And then for re- as in when the festivals would happen, he would take a journey from the north, walking across the Jordan, east of the Jordan River, crossing back again near Jericho, and then to Bethany, and then to Jerusalem. This was a regular transit route that all Jews, we know that Jews would not grow through Samaria. Well, Jesus even did that, but this was a regular route where Jews living afar would come to Jerusalem along the Transjordanian towards the east, cross over near Jericho, come to Bethany, have a stopover, and then half, and then come to Jerusalem. Bethany, near Jerusalem, it's like two miles, the text tells us, and it's a 40-minute walk. But there's another Bethany in the region of Perea. Uh, you go up from Bethany in Judea to Jericho, then you cross the Jordan River, go a little up, we have another place called Bethany here. It's called the Bethany within the territory of Perea. This Bethany is the one that we see in John chapter 1 where Jesus mentions that he was across the Jordan River where he was baptizing people. So there are two Bethanies. I was having a test slide to just ask a trivia, how many Marys do we have in the Bible? But for the lack of time. Uh, at least we know now there are two Bethanies, one in Judea, which is two miles from Jerusalem, 40-minute walk, and one in Perea, which is around 37 miles, and it would take 12 hours of daylight or visible light to walk from Bethany in Perea uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem. Well, all this would be, has some purpose for me sharing this as we go to the text. Secondly, there were three important festivals for which all the Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. One would be in the month of April, which would be Passover, and then we will have um, 
the Feast of Tabernacles, which is around September-October time period. And then we have the Feast of the Dedication, or Festival of Lights, uh, in December. So, and Jesus would, even though he'd be in Galilee, he would travel down for these festivals to be in Jerusalem. And every time he would be there, we know from the text and from all the Gospels that he would say things and do things that would really trigger the religious and the political establishment. Uh, why I read this text, why I mentioned this was because just prior towards the end of chapter 10, um, okay, let me put it this way. <clears throat> Uh, during the second year of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 10 tells us that on his, one of his travels to Jerusalem, he stopped by the house of Martha. This is the first time the gospel mentions about uh, Jesus coming in contact with the family. Prior to that, did he visit? The scripture is silent, we can assume, um, because of the intimate relationship that Jesus had with this family. So that's the first instance. So during the second year of his ministry is the first recorded instance where Jesus had interaction with the family. Then in his third year of his ministry, he comes during the month of September to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And when he's there, he says and does things that really angers people. And John 7, in John 7.25, we see that Jesus is already on the kill list. Then John 8.59, they try to stone Jesus. He somehow slips from Jerusalem. Again, the same route. From Jerusalem, he would go to Bethany, get the supplies, and then move over to Perea and have some relief. Then again, in the month of December, he would come back again for the festival of lights or dedication. And he came for that to Jerusalem. Again, he says and does things that really, uh, you have to read the gospel, uh, but he says and does things that again angers the authorities. And in John 10, 31, they again try to stone him. The mob is so unruly, the, the threat to Jesus and his disciples' life is real. They try to stone him. In verse 10, John 10, 39, they try to arrest him, but again Jesus slips away. Jesus slips away using the same passage. So we have a Jeris can I have the slide three? Okay, that's the Bethany across Jordan. Uh, okay, so Jesus slips away from the temple area. Then there's a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. Then there's an upslope of mountain, Mount of Olives. Then there's a downslope. And Bethany is located at the east side of the slope, low-lying area. That's where Bethany is. And so, so this time again, when Jesus escapes, the same route because they need to have supplies and things. And you can only travel when there's daylight. So Jesus comes to Bethany. Likely, Jesus came to Bethany, and then, can I have the first map? Or the second one, sorry. Yeah, and likely he came back to Bethany and went back to Bethany across Jordan. This is where chapter 10 ends. And this is where Jesus is preaching and people coming to him and believing. This is where the story of chapter 11 starts. What do we read here? 11, now a man, a certain man, Lazarus, was sick. He was from Bethany of Judea, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. I can have the map, please. And his brother was sick. So while this is happening, so verse 3, his sister sent a word. Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus is in the Bethany of uh, Perea and... Um, how would 
the sisters know where Jesus is. That is not, we are in the days of no telephone or communication. The most likely explanation is Jesus must have touched base before going to Bethany. So, and that's a 12-hour journey from Bethany of Judea to Bethany of Perea. And uh, Jesus is here when the sisters send a messenger to him that, Lord, the one you love is sick. And now let's go to the text and see what... I hope the historical and the topographical uh, information helps us to read the text with more clarity. Um, <clears throat> verse 3. Here is a brother, a dear brother, probably the youngest. Uh, Martha is assumed to be the oldest because in Luke we see Jesus went to the house of Martha. Since there's no other male heir over there, uh, it's, people conclude that likely Martha is the oldest, or Mary is the one in the middle, and probably Lazarus to be the youngest. And, and so the sisters sent a word to Jesus. Uh, often we go through the circumstances and situations when um, the people near to us, or there comes a point where outside help ceases to be meaningful and we have and we have the ability to call or we have the opportunity or we have the chance to 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 ask of Jesus and this is what Jesus, the sisters did they knew Jesus would Jesus loves them he can and he is able to do what they've asked to do and the second we see here the lord and they, they don't ask for healing they don't ask any specifics they just tell him lord the one you love the word here is phileo. The one you love with a brotherly and a friendly tenderness, he is sick. And they just take it for granted that Jesus would do the needful at the right time. Verse 4. When Jesus hears this news, um, he, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death, ultimately. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. Let's keep in mind the purpose of John writing this gospel. Um, so that God's Son may be glorified. Now comes the most perplexing part of this story. Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed there for two more days. How many of us would do that? If we have a call or a message that someone dear to us is sick, almost to the point of perishing, we would run. We would do all we could to, to get there and get the help that we can. Because for us, as humans, our window is narrow. But, um, but here we see that Jesus stayed there for two more days. It is so uncharacteristic of Jesus when we see the Gospels. Anytime anybody came to him running, Jesus would always heal. He would take the initiative to heal, to mediate, to bless, to, to whatever be the disease or whatever be the condition or whatever be the dilemma. Jesus would always, he would never send anybody empty-handed. But in here, it is something mystifying. Why would Jesus hold for two more days? And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. We know the context. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. They almost escaped being stoned to death. And when, I, I imagine, when the, when the messengers from Martha and Mary came to Jesus, and when Jesus did not react and send the messengers back without going with them, the disciples felt, well, well, we love Martha and Mary, but uh, if, you, if you live to... If, we can fight if we live another day, right? So the, the disciples were content that Jesus took the right decision by not going. But now after two days, Jesus has said, no, we are going back to Judea. And the, and the disciples are like, Lord, 
they just, we just barely made it out of there. This is, this is suicidal, this is foolhardy to go back to that place. And in verse 9, we, Jesus makes a very uh, esoteric quote. He says that, are there not 12 hours in the day? If you walk by the light, you shall not stumble. If you walk in the night, you will stumble. I tried to understand, okay, what was Jesus trying to say? This is my view. Um, to everyone who seeks the will of God, God has appointed a time, a place, and a plan. As long as we are in that will and seek to pursue and pers- pursue that will of God, no matter what the external circumstances, nothing will deter or thwart God's plans. So we may feel that it is a mortal danger to go to Judea, but Jesus knows his hour has not yet come. He is confident. He's, he knows that he is in the will of God, unlike disciples who are petrified by the very thought of going to Judea. <clears throat> and then we see this again. Um, Jesus, I don't know whether he was playing with the disciples, that Lazarus has fallen asleep. I want to go and wake him up. Um, and the disciples, well, if he's just sleeping, he'll get better. We, uh, why the rush? And then Jesus tells them that no, he is dead. Lazarus is dead. And again, this is uh, in verse 4, I said one of the most enigmatic statements why, if you would love a person, you would hold back for two more days in the hour of great crisis? Mortal danger. But Jesus held back. This is another verse which says, I'm for your sake, verse 15, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. We'll come back to these statements. Please hold the thought. Thomas, I don't know if it's a cry of desperation. (laughs) Uh, One time, yeah, is it in baseball, you say, one base, one strike, two strike? And he's sure, this time they're going back to Jerusalem, they are going to get killed. And (laughs) he makes this kind of a statement of resignation, you know. Uh, let us all go. Let's die with him if he's so hell-bent on going to J- J- Jerusalem. Uh, I love the back and forth between commentators who say, no, he was courageous. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I'll leave it at that. So, <clears throat> so we know if Jesus said from Bethany of Perea to come down to Bethany of Judea, it would take... I checked the map yesterday. It takes 11 hours, 51 minutes. It is 37 miles. And back in the day, you could only travel when it is daytime and you have daylight. And when there are transit people, people going back and forth. And, this is the, and people who have read the Gospels are familiar with the treacherous roads through Jericho, which is filled with bandits and other things. But it will take 12 hours to, for Jesus and his disciples to head back and reach Bethany. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus, has already, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. If you do a little bit of reverse logic, so the messengers that came to Jesus took 12 hours to reach there. That's day one. Jesus stays there for two more days. That's three days already. Jesus and his disciples take another 12 hours. That is day four. So it's very likely that Lazarus died, not because Jesus, Lazarus already, may have already died when the messengers were en route. And when they even came and said to Jesus, Jesus in his omniscience was able to say, this death, this sickness will not end in death. 
So Lazarus did not die because Jesus was late in his coming. He was already dead by the time, if we, if we go back in the chronological order and check things. So Lazarus did not die because Jesus was late. Now, now Bethany was... So we know the proximity of Bethany of Judea with Jerusalem. So when the news came out that this... Uh, the only male member in this particular family, the lineage through which the family name should continue, is have perished. And this is two grief-stricken, two sisters. They have friends and relatives and neighbors, everybody, even from the local village, from Bethphage, from, from Jerusalem, everybody coming, trying to console and comfort these bereaved sisters. In the Eastern culture of grieving and the Western culture of grieving is very different. It is very loud. It is very public. The emotions are very raw and it's, it's on display. And everybody cries. Even if they're not related to Lazarus, they would still cry. And there are hired mourners who would come and cry with them. There are flute players and other things that would happen just to help uh, the, the, the grieving person to grieve it out and to vent out this emotion that's inside. And back in the day, the Jewish, Jewish tradition would uh, dictate that the mourning would start from day one to anywhere between five to seven days. And the person that, and the deceased ought to be buried with as minimal embalming on the very day that the person dies. So it's not even you get to grieve and get to see the person for a couple of days or go back and see again in the morgue. No, the person died, you embalm, you wash him with warm water, say your final goodbyes, cover him in a shroud, and put him in a tomb. And then you grieve for the next five days. This is the Eastern, or at least back in the day, and very similar to some of the funerals that I have attended and seen back home. Um, it's very loud. It's, even if you're not related, it's, it affects you in a way uh, that I cannot describe. <clears throat> and when Jesus was outside, so I imagine the scene, there's so much commotion, there's so much people out there, and Jesus is still outside the village. The, 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 the disciples are already petrified because they know what they escaped, and they know a lot of people have come from Jerusalem. They cannot be incognito there. They will be noticed, they will be reported. While they are having their own worries, that Jesus had different thoughts. And he's outside of this village. And Martha, when she hears that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. And then we hear from Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Oftentimes, Martha gets the lesser of the importance. I don't know why. But if you look at the Luke account here, and even in John chapter 12, you see Martha as um, uh, being the oldest Partially, he's, she's a responsible one. She gets to the tasks. She does the things. She does the hard work. Uh, but here, in the midst of this grief, you can still see a rock stolid person showing deep restraint, but at the same time, love in the midst of all this grief. And I was trying to understand that statement that she made. But even if you had been here, my brother would have lived. And I know that even if God, you can ask God and God can do something, I was trying to understand what, just, what Martha was trying to say. The best I could paraphrase is this. Lord, we, we sent for you. You know he was sick. You could have sent a word and healed him with that if you couldn't make it on time. You could have done that. But it's a little too late. It's, it's too late for any intervention now. But we trust you. We know that you've been used by God in, our country, in this nation. 
and that God's hand is upon you. So I trust you and that, that you'll be used and that, that your power would be used to minister to this nation. But in our case, it's a little too late. This is the best description I could find what Martha was trying to say. She's restrained, she has the faith, she has the confidence in Jesus, but she's disappointed that Jesus did not make it on time. And then Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And like a pious woman and, and, and uh, steady in her Jewish tradition, uh, she takes it as a complimentary, a consolatory, a comforting word. Yes, Master, I know that in the last day, uh, he will rise again on the last day. But she had no clue what Jesus was intending to do. And then Jesus tells her the most profound thing and liberating truth of the ages. I am the resurrection and life. If you see the seven episodes that I mentioned earlier, from bringing the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, this is the final and the most climactic truth statement that Jesus makes about himself. I am the resurrection and life. <clears throat> the one who believes in me, even though they die, they will live. Do you believe this? Well, we don't know how much Martha could comprehend uh, the gravity of the statement to make the confession that she makes. And, and uh, uh, she, she has no reason to distrust or not to believe in Jesus. And she thinks that if Jesus is saying he is the life, he is the resurrection and the life, by that understanding he would be uh, the Messiah and the Son of God. Because the resurrection and life, they are prerogatives that belong only to God and no human and no prophet. And she is able to come down to that uh, confession, though I don't know how much she realizes, but she makes the confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Why did John write the gospel? John wrote the gospel so that everyone who encounters Jesus would be able to confess that he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. I, I think there's another Jewish tradition which says, so for the three, um, okay, this is, I'll come back to that. Yeah, so uh, there's another reason why uh, Jesus waited for four days. There's a Jewish tradition which says that uh, the soul, after the death, the soul hovers over the body for three days trying to re-enter it. And once the soul sees that there's visible changes in the color and the texture of the body, it, nah, I'm not going back, <laughs> it starts its journey to God. And there's another tradition that says that for anywhere between 3 to 12 months, the spirit or the soul undergoes, um, it's like getting lost or getting purified to find its final way to the abode, to the paradise. I'm sure all of the Jews who lived at that time heard and believed to what extent, I don't know, these traditions. And all, Mar all Martha was thinking was, Jesus, you could still ask Father, that, you know, my brother's soul would not lost, lose his way and that he find, finds his way to the paradise. That would be still better. And you can ask for the Father and he will do that. Um, <clears throat> but, she, but she's able to make this confession that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. Then in verse 28 we see that Jesus asks for Mary and she comes and we see the same statement. She falls at his feet. Verse 32, and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There is love in that statement. There is profound grief in that statement. There is a sense of missed opportunity. There is a sense of loss, of void. That is just overwhelming. 
all the time when Jesus could have just by his word reversed it. That is, a, that is a place where, you know, it's difficult to fathom why would God do things the way he does uh, and the plans and purposes. But Jesus gives us a hint. He did this so that the glory of God would be revealed through his son. And then we see here, Mary comes out, all the mourners with him running behind Mary. And now it's a big, come on, now there are people, they are, they are wailing and they are crying. And Jesus saw her weeping, and all the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And in verse, he uses the same word again. Um, um, the NIV does not do justice to the Greek translation of this verse. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But the, the original Greek rendition is he was deeply sorrowful, to, and deeply hurt to the point that he's angry, he's indignant about it. That's the emotion that's swelling up in Jesus. He loved this family. This family was very dear to him. He had all the powers within his hand. So it's, it's, it's a great deal of discussion with, with, with theologians. What, what was his anger directed to? Was it directed towards Martha and Mary because of the lack of faith? No, we don't see that. Was it directed towards the mourners who were making a big chaos and crying for no reason? Or crying for reason, but uh, um, just being there? Uh, in my reading of the text, and in verse 35, we see Jesus wept with them. He did not chide them for, for crying. He did not chide them for, for bringing out their grief or, for, or maybe making a point that Jesus was late. No, he cries with them. This is the greatest insight. When God, when Jesus reveals God, God as one who is here with us, who, is, who, who understands the pathos of human life and human suffering and death and the devastation that comes with death, Jesus is able to relate with these grief-stricken sisters. He cries with them. He's not a lofty, transcendent, deist God out there somewhere who cannot understand the, the sorrow of uh, two sisters living in some village in, in Bethany. He's the same God we worship today. Once, verse 38, once more deeply moved, he came to the tomb. What was he angry towards? What was his whole emotion directed at? the tomb and the death that the tomb represented. I believe his, his emotion was directed towards death. The pathos and the suffering and the devastation that death brings has brought to this family, but also in general to all of humanity. His, his, his anger was directed towards that. And I'm just thinking in my mind, okay, Jesus knows what he's going to do in a few minutes. And I'm thinking of the company of people behind him. After they see, okay, Lazarus is raised, someone can say, what about my son who's buried there? What about my wife over there? But at this time, in the plan and the providence of God, it is Lazarus that has to be raised. So having this bird, I'm, I'm just thinking, was it all this, the, the, the general plight, the hurt, the fear, the frustration, the grip that death has, the, the reality of death has, over human man, it was towards that. It was towards that reality that Jesus was indignant, indignant towards, 
And here is the resolve he builds because a couple of weeks from now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to have the same struggle. He's going to have that same resolve to once and for all decisively defeat death on Calvary. Take away the stone, Jesus said. <clears throat> Martha, as usual, she wants, she's pragmatic. Yeah, no, she, she, she knows Jesus is a Messiah and the resurrection, but still, she's still exploring the possibility of the definition. And she's, she's sure that it's the fourth day. Any Jewish tradition, if at all legitimate, is beyond conception now here. It is the fourth day. And having studied pathological anatomy and viewed dead bodies and the stages of death, uh, even if it was a winter and even if it was a dry place, uh, it's already 48 plus hours. Uh, Alger mortis, liver mortis, pillar mortis. We have, we have liver mortis. All those stages of death is over. Now you're on the verge of, you're almost decomposing. Martha knew it was a bad order would come because it's four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Why did Jesus delay four days? Why did Jesus say that this death will not, the sickness will not end in death ultimately? And then he tells his disciples, I'm glad I waited so that you would see once and for all that I am the Lord over life, over death, over all the forces of decay in the body or all the forces of death outside of the body. I am the Lord. And had he come before, Lazarus' healing would have been the one among the many that Jesus already did and was doing throughout Israel. There's nothing spectacular about it. There's already a case, there are already examples of uh, Jairus' daughter being raised, uh, widow's son being raised at nine. What is so unique about this, res this resurrection? It was for the glory of God to show beyond any shadow of doubt that Jesus is not just a miracle worker, is not just a prophet, is not just a teacher, but he is the very author of life and a destroyer of death and decay. <clears throat> the dead man, I, I cannot f imagine the scene. We got a company of you know, possibly 70, 100 people. You have two sisters here and Jesus right in front of the tomb. And the voice of all the ages that cried out in creation, let there be light. And that voice cries out, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Take off his grave clothes and let him go. There was awe there was fear because this is something that has never happened in Israel or, a matter of fact, in any recorded world history. People were concerned, oh, what about the ritual, laws of ritual purification? Are we touched? Is it dead? They don't know what's happening here. But they were glad. But this, this miracle or this sign showed once and for all to the people that Jesus was much more what people thought about who he was. And this, and in a way, I want to expound on that, but I don't think we have the time today. The, rise, the raising of Lazarus was a prelude to his own death and resurrection, 
in approximately five weeks from this period. I want to close with this. Well, that's a story that happened 2,500 years ago. How is that relevant to us today? What was the purpose of John writing the Gospel? I come to that again. What is the purpose of John writing the Gospel? So that everyone who hears the words of Jesus might come to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, believing in, and by believing in him you, and him alone, you shall have eternal life. This was the central. So, for, so this, there are four things I would want you to take home from today's meditation. Jesus, in his chapter 3, when he discusses with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals himself not just as a divine teacher, but the very divine Son of God. There has to come a point where you move from just a teacher, just a divine teacher, to the divine Son of God. To the women at the well, the Samaritan women, Jesus revealed himself not just as a prophet, one among the many, but as more than a prophet, as virtually the savior of the world. To the man born blind, Jesus was the one, not just a miracle worker who gave him the light of his eyes, but Jesus, not just the proverbial light of the world, but the son, the radiant son of man himself, the man who never read the Jewish text could make a confession that he is the son of man, which the learned Pharisees could not make it despite countless times reading the Daniel account of the son of man. But the blind man was able to make that confession. And finally, Martha is able to make this confession. Jesus is just not the loving master who loves us, who cares for us, but he is the loving Messiah that has saved my brother. And by virtue of that event, would save all of humanity by his death and his resurrection. This is what John wanted people to realize, and he selected those signs where people would come to a greater confessional belief about who Jesus was. For many in the world, Jesus is a wonderful historical figure, a guru, um, a teacher par excellence, and all of this, as good as they may be. But if that is where it stops, if that is all the light that you have, and if that is all that you can feed on, it will not pierce the darkness of death and life. Death. If you have not come beyond the conception of all these identities of Jesus, to him being the Son of Man, and the light and the life and resurrection, um, it is a lost cause. Many in the academic world, and even many Christians, this story for them is, 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 is symbolic, is metaphorical, is allegorical. I am hard-pressed if they would see the same thing when they are on the deathbed, that it is allegorical or symbolic or allegorical. No. This is real life. This is real death. Lazarus went through it. Jesus consummates that through his life and death, and we all sitting here will go through it, unless we have a revelation of Jesus as the life and resurrection, it is a scary road to travel. Secondly, what is man? A grass that is here tomorrow, gone to, here today, gone tomorrow. A vapor that is here for seconds. The transient nature and the frail nature of our humanity. Uh, when I was studying in first year medical school, we studied about cell division. We live because the cell divides and replicates. And with every division, 
the chromosomes uh, the chromosomes have telomere towards the end and they, sh they keep on shortening with every division of the cell and there comes a point there's no the cell cannot divide it's the telomeres are shortened enough and the cell eventually degenerates ages and dies this is a human body this is our life here it can be a very sobering and a, and a, and a very uh, disillusioning thought if that is all the truth that we have. But for a person who's born again, who lives in the light that Jesus has shown, who nourishes himself while on earth by the living water and the bread that he gives, and who has the deepest conviction in his heart that Jesus is the resurrection and life, Only, only that kind of uh, conviction can help us face our fears and look towards death with audacity to say, you shall not have the final word. My master has the final word on this. And we live that life and we die in that truth. Even our loved ones have the assurance my, my, my loved one has gone ahead to a better place. They have the peace, we have the peace to face this reality head on just because we believe in Jesus as a resurrection and life. Two more points. Grief, anxiety and hopelessness affects everyone when we lose somebody dear to us. For the last year, uh, I've been losing one member of the family after another. So many of our families here have gone through that process. Even for Christians, the grief and the sorrow and the sense of void can become very overwhelming. Only God can give us that closure while here and the final consolation of reunion in the hereafter. So again, John beckons us to know Jesus. But in the immediate effect, in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy, what happened in the village of Bethany? Folks came in from Jerusalem. They came in. There were messengers ready to take the urgent appeals of Martha and Mary to Jesus 37 miles. There were people who were there to comfort and to hold and to, to be with them. There were people who were ready to, despite all the ritual laws, ready to move away the stone, to take off the grave clothes. The community of believers, the body of Christ, our essential role, especially to walk with people who have been, who are going through this grief. While we walk together to the blessed hope that we have. Lastly, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus loved Jesus. They believed in Jesus. In the hour of the greatest trial, they called for him. Apparently, it felt that he was late and he died. But then Jesus comes, calls him out. I believe the first face Lazarus saw was the face of Jesus. The very first voice that he ever heard was Jesus' voice. And while all the people were shrinking behind, the first touch through his body I can remember, would have been the hands of Jesus. This is not just uh, truth back in what happened in Bethany. This translates to our future as well. When our course in this world is done, and this earthly rainman gets confined to the forces of nature. If we have loved Jesus, if we have believed in him, if we called out to him, we will hear his voice. We will 
feel his touch. We will be the, the first face that we will see will be his. That is my, this is my personal hope. This is a hope I have for all of my loved ones who have gone ahead of us and for yours as well. This is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus and that which John again wanted through his gospel. The next time you read the gospel of John, read this with the perspective that John wanted you to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Not just the light of the world, not just the bread of life, not just the living life of the living wa- the water of life, but he is life itself and the Lord over death. He is life and the resurrection. Let's pray. Father Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the light that you've given, for the water that you've washed us with, for the bread that you feed us, Lord. While we live here in this world, help us to hear your voice so that on that day we are able to hear your voice when you come in glory. I pray for every heart and every family that's here, especially for those grieving, mourning, the loss of the loved ones, Lord. It's painful, and only you can minister to that need. No human words would suffice. Only the peace that comes from you can pass and surpass the grief that they're going through. I pray that you would minister to them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.